At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to So Very Wrong About Games. I'm your co-host, Mark Bigney, and with me, as always, is my loyal co-host, Michael Walker. How are you doing, Walker? Really good, Mark. I'm very glad to hear that. Now, some people lately, and indeed throughout the entire run of the podcast, have had some difficulty telling us apart, ascribing views to you that belong to me or vice versa, and I've come up with a very, very simple guide and a very easy way to remember. Walker is the one who's always wrong, and Mark is the one who is never right. Very brilliant. You'd think that we'd be able to explain to the four people that listen... And get us separated apart, but apparently... I'm looking forward to, as many things, permanently settling this issue and never having to hear about it ever again. Because that's how the internet works. It is. It never brings it back up. There is no history, and we live by the moment. So, this is a podcast about board games. We're going to talk about the games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And we're going to talk about our feature game this week, which is an acrony, specifically the Fractures of Time expansion. So, with that in mind, let us begin with the games we played last week. Walker, what did you play last week? Mark, we got to play Barrage again. And not only did we play it, but we streamed it on Twitch for those who watched. We try to do a show every Saturday, normally at 10 a.m. Eastern. But it may vary depending on when I'm forced to work. Anyway, back to Barrage. It is designed by Tommaso Battista and Simone Luciani, and it's put out by Cranio Creations. And this is a very interesting game. We've talked about it before. It's about, you know, blocking water and converting into power and stealing water from other people and yelling at Mark for stealing your water. And it's an all-around fantastic game. I love how, you know, the end game con- conditions are, you know, switched up a bit depending on how the round uh, goals are set. And especially when you don't have a final round goal, that really mixes up the game. Yeah, it's one of those things where during setup, if you don't remember to put an end round goal for each round, and it's in the last round, the round where you finally got your power production in order and there's no goal to benefit from it. 
I'm not bitter. I'm not bitter at all. <laughs> it was it led to like interesting questions. Like I looked down at the board and it did have a different symbol in it, right? So it didn't have the right <laughs> symbol. So I look at it, I go, okay, that's I guess that makes sense. And I sort of like, Mark, why are we producing power in the final round if we don't what's the and you like look at the board and it's like, yeah, there really should be a token there. Can't really add one now. But anyway, other than that, I'm loving Barrage more and more that we play it. Uh I'm not sure like like we talked about with the expansion, I'm not sure if it adds I'm not sure if I want to go back to that expansion. I really like how the the worker placement is really tight and blocking, and I don't really like this opening up of the resources and stuff. But I, I, we only, I only got to play it once, so I wouldn't mind going back to try it once more just to see if it doesn't bring something else to the table. This has been a very good week for medium-heavy worker placement games with substantial expansion content available and for looking at how the expansion content worked, especially for me. I, I played one more than you did under that category. And the League of Water expansion, oh, and by the way, it's not Barrage. We're informed that, you know, according to something that some guy once looked up on the internet once, it's pronounced Barugali, uh, contra to the engineers that I've heard it pronounced Barrage. But, you know, so in, in deference to the uh, pedant on the internet who corrected us, uh, the game of Barugali is indeed, as you say, a tight game of competition over scarce resources and of board position and on top of that, tight worker placement conditions. And that's the main thing that I didn't like about the expansion. Relatively low rules overhead, which is, which is ideal, but it gives you all these new worker spots and it gives you the ability to perform some of the core game functions in new ways. And what that does is it relieves a tremendous amount of pressure off the worker placement. A great thing about Barrage is it you know the things that you need to get to right away, but seldom is it the case that you're like, well, I've got three or four actions I, I could do, and I'm reasonably confident none of them are going to disappear, so I don't care in what order I do them. You, you're constantly triaging about what you need to do, whether you're fighting over that water, whether you're trying to put a building out so somebody else can't undercut you. It's really, really well done, and I can definitely understand why it won the International Gamers Award the year that it came out, which is uh, used to be an august institution until they admitted a couple of jagoffs from Kingston onto the jury. It's true. I don't know what they were thinking about there, but anyhow, it is definitely one of your your more solid productions uh, in terms of game design, not necessarily in terms of actual physical execution. The ongoing fulfillment of the Cranio Kickstarter is rather disastrous, but I do love Barrage. It's very intense, very unforgiving, but in very satisfying ways. And I think it's really a good example of how you want to do a Eurogame like this. And on top of all this, it's got this fantastic way you spend resources. You have this wheel, and you use the, your little building actions. And you put, okay, I'm going to build a dam. You put that on the wheel. You put the resources that you need to, to build it, and you sort of spin the wheel one place. And as you build stuff, it keeps turning and your resources are locked in there until they spit out the other end. So you're doing all these different actions that help spin your wheel or maybe building things you don't really need to build in order to get that wheel turned even further. And I really love that on top of everything else because you sort of look down and like you say that, you know, what actions do I need to do now? And it's like, okay, well, I want to build all of my stuff now. So that way the wheel starts turning. So that way when I start you know, doing the false turns, then everything's turning, not just, you know, a few things and spaced out anyway. The tension I almost always feel, regardless of where I am in the turn order, is thinking, okay, 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 there's this water, and I've got everything lined up, and I can generate power, so I should jump on a power generation action, then I say, wait a minute, I don't have any contracts. Okay, do I lose tempo and go get the contracts, thereby risking that the good power generation spots are going to go, or do I generate power now? Crap, I should have taken contracts at the end of last round. Or indeed in the middle of the last one. Yeah, it's really, really well done and constant little trade-offs. 
I really do appreciate it. And it's one of those games that has legs in that I'm, I'm starting to see more and more the sort of the, the, the Berugli experts, if you will, say that power generation is actually kind of secondary to racing up your income tracks because most factions have an income track that will generate seven points every round and indeed when you first built it. And that's huge. But they're not entirely divorced. And this is one of the things that I appreciate about games like this, you know, the heavier Euro games where all the things come together. Because even if you're just building the dams just because that will have an impact on the overall water supply and the overall power generation picture. Even if you forego power generation entirely, which I don't think is actually viable to forego it entirely. And even if you're just building a whole bunch of dams, then you care about the end, game, end round bonuses that give you benefits for having produced those things, in which case you need to generate power to qualify for it. Anyway, Barrage, I think, is really well done. I love being able to try different things, and I love how the emergent geography shifts everything every, uh, every different game. It is solidly, solidly well done. And if it had a solo mode that did not involve, you know, an extra 20-page rulebook and a massive quantity of expansions, I might even give it a shot. But it is very much the solo mode that I'm not interested in trying. So, so much for that. Yeah, I opened up the box and it had, like, these, you know, 40, you know, thick hard tiles, thick yeah. tiles. And it's like, I sort of look at them and said, this is a solo mode that I don't even want to look at. And they went to the side. Right. And that is Barrage. What else did you get to play this week, Mark? Well, on the topic of medium-heavy worker placement euros with expansion content, I played Argent the Consortium again in my preferred configuration with the Summer Break module, which gives you another couple extra rounds but ramps things up. And I very much appreciated that because I've commented before, I really like it when games have an arc. And Argent is knives out and very, very cutthroat, and it's all about blasting people's faces off and taking advantage of this, that, and the other. And I really like how it's very much in the mold of other level 99 games designs which is to say excess is never enough and i appreciate that but i also appreciate how the summer break expansion gives you a little bit of a ramp up so especially for new players we had all new players except for me and so you get a couple rounds to see how the flow of the game works now the 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 core special powers work and then by round three and four everything is tight again you have to worry about killing everybody I was a little bit disappointed that varying the room setup, this was the first time where I just had more or less entirely random rooms, and it didn't provide as much variety as I hoped it might, which is a mild misgiving I have about it. I'd always previously played with the standard recommended first game setup, but uh, maybe it's a good thing that none of the rooms are terribly wild. Of course, had they been tremendously novel, I probably would have complained about how they threw the entire game into a curveball, so I guess what I'm saying is I can't be satisfied. I'm I'm kind of worried about the the adults of this world. Like they send their children to this death school of of death. This is this is a university, so it's like youngish adults or maybe old kids. And it's fine. You just throw a fireball into their face or or send them through a vortex or drown them in a pool. They they end up in the infirmary. Everything's fine. It's a big cartoon bandage. Oh, I see. I see. That's hiding a little bump. And that's uh, that's all you need to worry. And about. like they do the like the little clan like the. Ambulance pulls up and, like, skids out, and these clowns, you know, come out and throw the stretcher on, and they fall through the bottom. They do this comedic thing, so, you know, no one gets icy, all right? I didn't well, understand. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't change the fact that there's a body count, but at least you get to laugh at it. There you go. So, as I have said before, I'm very glad that I found a configuration of Argent, the consortium, that I'm able to get to the table somewhat consistently. It helps bring the length down from a two to three, two and a half to three hours to more like two to two and a half hours, which for me, speaking personally in terms of my preferences, makes a big difference in terms of how much of a lift the game feels like. 
every marginal minute past 120 for me really it starts to carry a burden of narrative and scope and arc so you know if you're not going to be civilization or successors or democker I'd rather you keep it under 150 minutes, if at all possible. And I really enjoy Urgent the Consortium. I think it's great in terms of just letting the variety of chaotic effects roll off you. It's not quite Cosmic Encounter, but it's definitely on a spectrum of having to manage with all of this because... You know, maybe there are some Argent players that are able to look over and say, "Ah, oh, well, based on all the five spells and three artifacts that each of my opponents has individually, I know exactly what they'll be able to throw at me. You know, you start to remember some of the effects that people can, can toss at you, but mostly it's about being opportunistic, which is a mode that I enjoy, but again, when under a proper length modulation. So again, super glad to be able to play Argent, and the Summer Break module is the way I want to do it. And that was by Trey Chambers at, and Level 99 Games. And I shouldn't have up-talked because that was the end of my sentence. I was wondering, where is it going with this, the end of this? So I dragged Mark back into playing Underworlds again because I have a little more time recently. This is designed by David Saunders and put out by Games Workshop. This is a skirmishy type game. And this is something that you really, something that you just really need to enjoy to play. Because it has tons of stuff that people will hate. Lots of (laughs) random dice rolling, lots of random card draw. Lots of these things that that people dislike, but it also has touches of things that people love. Like there's very light deck building, there's very light modeling, and you can take it to the extreme, right? You can these this game has pushed together figures, and the fact that these figures are so fantastic and they fit together with no glue is an engineering wonder to me. It's amazing that. You know, I've been in this hobby for many years and I've gone through iterations of painful gluing and, and putting molds together. And the fact that they've, you know, come back to push together plastics that look this good is amazing. But in the long run, they've made huge changes. I just got picked up the newest game called Dire Chasm with uh, the two new factions. And you can see the direction that they're pushing in. They've definitely changed the game up a lot sort of change the way the cards are worded and how the game's going to play out a little bit. And I really like the way it's going. I'm uh, looking forward to playing more. What do you think, Mark? So we reviewed Warhammer Underworlds when it was Shadespire, and this was relatively early on in the show. And one of the things that I praised Warhammer Underworlds for was the activation system and how tight the scope of an individual game is. It's three rounds of four activations each. And there are very strict restrictions on what a unit can do. You can charge with a unit, and they get to move and attack and possibly have a tremendous impact on the game. But then they're done for the round, pretty much doing nothing else. And that part was a joy to get back into. It really, really is a solid piece of design. And I wish it were not married to an evolving meta that feels more and more like Magic the Gathering. And that's not a slide on magic or any design element of magic. It's just you said that there's light deck construction. And to a certain extent, that's true. But if you want there to be any customization at all, what you have to do is go into this massive pool of available cards. Back when it was just Shadespire and they had a handful of factions, you could do deck construction in about five minutes just by thumbing through available cards and going for it. Now it's this one, this situation where it, it's kind of dizzying. It's, you, you get kind of a vertigo based on the available library of cards. So that's one of the misgivings I have personally, because I'm not interested in getting into that level of deck construction. I do appreciate that the new factions all do come with pre-constructed yeah, decks, that's, and that's nice. That's what I was going to talk about, because back the first two expansions, they came with uh, – you got full – 
uh, power decks is what they call them, but your objective deck was only nine of 12 cards. And they were weird. Yeah. And so you, and, and the ones that you did get were kind of, like you say, odd. So you did have to sort of fiddle around, but now, uh, all the factions come with full decks, full numbered out, and you can go right from there. So you don't have to do deck building and they're not as terrible as they were in the first set. So now it's not too, too bad. Right. So now I'm in a a position where there's kind of a, uh, an awkward middle. As a pull-off-the-shelf, here's a pre-made faction, I would like there to be some degree of customization. Let me just compare it to, to another kind of, like, the, the sort of self-contained skirmishy things that I like. Titan's Tactics, Akko, Era of the Asagiri, even more complicated stuff like Mythic Battles, Pantheon, or things like that. You get some degree of customization without immersing yourself in a massive pool and a lot of time commitment up front. You can't really do that anymore with Warhammer Underworlds. It's pretty much either you have the units and the cards all set up as a bundle, and you can never modify the units. You've never been able to do that. Or you can just get into this dizzying array of, well, what's the balance here? Do I care when I draw this card, when that's going to be an issue? And so, that, that again, that's just personally not what I want out of this system. I want, wanted this system to do different things. I, I much preferred the meta and how the universe existed back in the early days of Shadespire where there were just a small full, a handful of expansion units. And then there's the other thing, which, and I did comment on this at the time, and has always rankled me, and I was reminded of, of, of really how bad it is. You say that there's lots of dice rolling. I wish that were true. There's a small amount of dice rolling, a small amount of high-variance, high-impact dice rolling. It literally is the case, since both sides have 12 activations total, where a single activation could kill your most valuable unit automatically or result in absolutely nothing happening and having someone be vulnerable for the rest of the round. And we're talking about, you know, two dice versus one other die and precious few ways to modify it. It it, it does sort of make it a little funny, the fact that (laughs) combat is the major part of the game. But you roll more dice figuring out the initiative at the beginning of a round <laughs> than true. you do during combat. It's true. And, of course, the initiative rolls can be supremely important. Again, based on how fragile everything is. Everything is quick and visceral. But what that does is that just ups the variance. And, uh, you know, little little bits of awkwardness with the setup. But that was just mostly just getting back into the system and That's things right. like that. Yeah, I, I love so many of the design elements of Warhammer Underworlds. I just, I just wish that it weren't shackled to this overall setup. That is Warhammer Underworlds. That and you, that and you made me play elves. You you tricked me into playing elves. It's a lie. By Games Workshop. <laughs> <laughs> On the topic of skirmishy type stuff, although this isn't really skirmishy, but it's within striking distance. We played Rum and Bones Second Tide. I love me some rum and bones. It's almost a guilty pleasure. I think it's actually better than a guilty pleasure, but it's kind of on that spectrum. Uh, you know, the, the, it, it's got sort of stereotypical pirate representations, so you've got a couple of borderline ethnic stereotypes. The representation of women isn't great. That, that, that's a bit of a problem. And it really does focus on the elements of MOBA-style gameplay that I really, really like, which is you've got these different lanes, you have to know where to commit, know when to push, know when to, uh, know when to hold back, and those are really the elements of MOBA that I really, really find fascinating. I, I've been reading some uh, analyses and listening to some reviews of some other MOBA-style games, and a lot of them, a lot of reviewers and a lot of people really prefer the ones that abstract away the minions. I am not that person. I don't think the game should be entirely about the minions because, you know, they're mindless. But if the minions are abstracted away or if the minions become supremely unimportant, then I feel like you're missing a lot of what makes MOBAs really, really cool. This this sort of multi-layered 
additional level of, honestly, strategy, of overall tempo, of the push and pull of different minion waves. So I love skirmish games, but if you're going to be a MOBA game, then, you know, you might as well go full tilt. And Rum and Bones was one of the first major adaptations of it, and I liked the base game, and I think that Second Tide is is, is yet better. So I, you know, pulled out my five huge boxes stuffed to the gills of, of massive quantities of Rum and Bones stuff. And uh, I had a great time. I really liked it. Sometimes it feels like a skirmish game. Sometimes it feels like you're managing minions. And that's the kind of balance that I want. Now, I've talked about this kind of thing a lot. And there are the games, and I'll talk about later when we talk about our, our feature game. And there are some games that you can just pull out of the box and play without ever touching the rule book. Roman Bones is not one of those games. There are a lot of fiddly bits. I really think it... it uh, just gets better and better the more you play it. So if it was a, a game that your group plays a lot, I just really think it would pull out a lot more that is in Rum and Bones. I, I'm going to have to disagree with you there. The only thing that I have to look up is setup because different factions have different numbers of ships. So are you a single ship fighting two ships? Are you a single ship fighting a single ship? Two ships fighting three ships? And where do the objectives go? Past setup, I remember how to play Rum and Bones even when I haven't played for, for about a year because it's incredibly simple. You activate something, you get to check a certain number of dice, and you get a certain threshold. Now, I respect the fact that it may not, for whatever reason, it may not be as easy for you to remember. I had more of a difficulty internalizing how, for example, Warhammer Underworlds works. Every time I played Warhammer Underworlds, this includes when I, when I would play tournaments, day-long tournaments where we'd play you know four or five games of Warhammer Underworlds back-to-back. Every time, I would still have to look up the setup procedure. It's like, okay, first we roll off, and then the winner gets to pick a board, and then the person who doesn't win gets a bonus for the next roll-off, which determines who starts setting up the objectives. And, uh. Now, look, it's, it's, it doesn't take a whole lot of time, but you need the rule book in your hand to get it done. And so faulting a game for having to look up the rule... The, no, I'm not, it's not a fault, Mark. It's just that type of game. I'm not saying it's bad or good. I'm saying there are some games sure. that you can play right out of the box, and there's some that aren't. This is one that I feel that you, <laughs> you, you normally have to go through the rule book to make sure you get all the finer points in. I will like say- when the Leviathan comes out, or how many cards you get to draw, or, or stuff like that. I just I, I, I'm partially reacting to a whole bunch of criticisms that are not yours. A number of people criticize Rum and Bones for saying, and then you have to activate the minions, and it's so tedious. Like, no, there are these large areas with six minions in them. You pick them up and you shove them a space. It's not a huge yeah. deal. No, I definitely don't have a problem with that. Yeah. So th- there is a certain level of component upkeep. It's a sprawling game with huge quantities of components. But given that, I think it bears its component weight relatively well so perhaps i'm a little hyper defensive with respect to rum and bones i will give you that and that is rum and bones by simon games more solid work from michael chanel next up we're going to gush about scapegoat again we finally got to play it at five players and we finally got to beat the scapegoat yes although while i was sitting here thinking about what what i was going to say about scapegoat i'm i got a little bit worried that it might suffer from this uh, if the same group plays together more often. Groupthink? Then, then, yeah, group, not not so much groupthink as as communication that new players wouldn't get. Oh, sure. Like one of these things where, you know, I pass you a card and you look at, up at me and then we both know that we're on the same team and then we figure, you know what I mean? But And if you have new players, they wouldn't catch on to that or they'd be at a disadvantage. But still, uh, I just love the length. I love everything about it scapegoat fantastic game 
So Scapegoat is a review copy we got from the designer, John Perry, and I really do think it's it's proving to be one of my favorite social deduction games. Perhaps even this is gonna this is high praise for me, perhaps even right up there with the resistance. Because Although, yes, you're absolutely right. There are these elements of communication that I think a certain degree of experience will get you there. There's enough card play and enough relatively transparent communication through that that there's still the ability to communicate with other people. I I would contrast this with, say, a trick-taking game. When people are playing trick-taking games for the first time, it's like everyone else is speaking in a foreign language. It's like, well, I love this card. Obviously, that in, that means that I have all the other things and everyone else at the table, whether that's because of personal information or groupthink or group meta or just experience with trick-taking games. Like, well, yeah, of course. And the person who doesn't have internalized that, it's like, I, I don't know what you're talking about. It looked like a nine to me. <laughs> this is true. Whereas in Scapegoat, there's an element where even I remember even the first turn of the first game we played where someone where a card hit the table and I'm like, wait a minute, <laughs> this might mean something. <laughs> and I, it does seem to be that the game is tilted based on our experience in favor of the scapegoat. But that's fine. I mean, the resistance is heavily weighted in favor of the spies anyway, and that's fine. Games don't have to have a 50-50 balance, especially when you get, they give you this experience. And our experience of successfully framing that scapegoat, it was very tense and so supremely satisfying, which is bizarre because it's, a, it, it's an inversion of the normal group dynamics, right? There were four of us at the table trying to frame a single patsy. And the success of the group ganging up, it was like the joys of bullying. It was, it was so strange. <laughs> it's so true. Because normally the, the joy is you feel into the gun when you're the lone person. But in order to frame the scapegoat, nobody can make a mistake. And the scapegoat has to let their guard down. And it was joyous. I, I really I really think that, that John Perry is a designer to watch. He managed to evoke so much with such an economy of components and playtime. And Scapegoat is, uh, you know, it's the social deduction game for people who both love social deduction games and hate social deduction games. To my mind, the biggest test of how good Scapegoat is is how it's going to play with three. We haven't played with three yet. Mixed reports, I am very curious. And that's been our further experiences with Scapegoat. Also played more Yuri Yura Penguin. And every time... I think I remember how cute it is. <laughs> and then I look at the little pictures in the rulebook of the penguins playing your Euro penguin or the penguin proclaiming penguin, which gets me every time. And we got to whip out Chonkers McLorge Pants, which is the official name now of one of the penguins. Yes. A penguin so large, so in charge that the box dimensions were determined by the size of this penguin. You can see a picture of it on our Facebook group. He's there standing triumphantly. Hovering above a, uh, a polar bear, that, that, but might even be a little intimidated by the penguin. I'm not. We're not sure. This is a pe- polar look, bears if, are very savage. But this this penguin. If I were a polar bear, I wouldn't want to mess with Chonkers McLord's pants. It's true. I will say this, however, and this is just this is the reason why I bring up your your penguin. I think the victory conditions are even more off kilter than I initially suspected. <laughs> Here's why. <laughs> Because in a multiplayer game, if somebody causes the tower to collapse, the winner is whoever has the fewest cards. Whoever has the fewest cards is going to almost be exclusively determined by who plays the reversal on you in traditional Uno fashion. Now we're playing counterclockwise instead of clockwise. And or who plays the cards that says draw two cards. And here's the situation. If I've got four cards in my hand, Walker's got six, and somebody else, Sidewinder, has eight. And we're sitting there, and all the plus twos have been played, because you play them as soon as possible, obviously. If I've got the six cards, the, the only way I win 
is if Walker topples the tower with his four cards. But if I'm Sidewinder and if I get eight cards, there's no way I can win. There's literally nothing to be done. The, like, the best I can hope for is just to prolong the duration of the game and lose later. That's not cool. But, as I constantly say, rare is the dexterity game where the victory conditions are actually well calibrated. But it occurred to me, after finally playing it multiplayer, that some people, in, by the mid-game, might be in an unwinnable position. It's true. I say unwinnable, though, only in the most technical of, of manners. Because if you're playing your Euro Penguin, you're a winner. It, this is true. And that is your your penguin. We got to play Hansa Teutonica with one of the expansion maps, more specifically the East expansion, and we even introduced it to new players with an expansion map. Not usually something I I, I want to do, but the the Eastern expansion one doesn't add too much outlandish rules like the other one does. Well, you've been hankering for an expansion map. Specifically, you want to play the UK map. But the UK map with new players, I do not think is a no. good idea. So we kind of split the difference and played with the East expansion map. True. And so there were people in our, in, our new, uh, in our new group. So hopefully now we'll be able to get onto some new and exciting things. And Hansa Tatanica never fails to satisfy. They... Loved it. They thought it would, you know, I mean, they raved about it afterwards. It's just this uh, back to old school shiv your partner <laughs> euro where it's always very tight. It's it's always about messing with other people. Every move you do is either messing somebody up or or you know planning to mess someone up in the future. Yeah, we didn't have any of the high quality parasitism that you sometimes see in Hansa Teutonica, because it's not always about shiving. It, it, it depends. There are lots of Euros where it's all about shiving people. But Hansa Teutonica is about kind of drafting off of what other people are doing and profiting off of that. We didn't see a whole heck of a lot of that, but that's probably to be expected with new players. It's, it's, it's more of a, of a subtle technique. But it, it, Hansa Teutonica has never failed to engage because you cannot go, go off into a corner and do what you're, you're doing by yourself. Other Euro root connection games, you absolutely can. I hesitate to even call Hansa Teutonica a root connection game. It's one of those Euros that, despite the fact that it feels very classic, and it felt very classic when it came out 10 years ago, it felt like a throwback even then, it doesn't really fit neatly into one of those categories. It's not a tableau builder. It's not an action selection game. It's not a drafting game. It's not a worker placement game. Uh, but anyway, yeah. Uh, enough has been said about Hansa Teutonica. If we have had any influence as a show... It has probably been to spread the word about Hansa Teutonica, and I feel very good about that. Exactly. This is designed by Andreas Stedding and put out in North America by Zeman Games. Got to play the SDJ winner of last year, Pictures, by Christian Starr and Daniela Starr, put up by P.D. Verlike. And Pictures is one of those things where it was, like, designed to bring out the worst in me. Now, I know what you're thinking. Mark, the only thing that is required to bring out the worst in you is a microphone, and you're absolutely right. Pictures makes it worse. <laughs> Here's the thing, and, and I'm, I'm, being, I'm being entirely serious here. I, I, I try to identify wherever possible my biases that keep me from enjoying a particular product. Uh, when something involves a spatial puzzle, I try to flag that because that's just not how my brain works and I don't find it particularly engaging. Pictures is a game where you have a 4x4 matrix of literal photographs. So these aren't uh, impressionistic drawings like you would find in Mysterium. They're not like the scenes you would find in Mysterium. Nor are they even the sort of semi-abstract, interesting, chimera, hybrid monstrosities that you would find in Codenames Pictures. These are literally just photographs, usually of landscapes, sometimes of a particular object. 
and you're told to communicate which one you've been, you've been assigned secretly with a set of tools. One set of tools is a couple of shoelaces. Another set of tools is these weird-shaped blocks. Another set of tools is some sticks and some stones. It's arts and crafts, Walker. <laughs> it's like the intersection of drawing and manipulating crafty objects. Yeah. Two activities I despise. Yeah, well, and you also omitted one of them. The other one is, like, the the Codenames Pitcher's deck. They give you <laughs> these deck of just, like, either, like, a skull or a pile of poop or all these silly things that you have to... Use these cards to show out one of these landscape things. It's practically impossible. It is very difficult. Uh, unless, of course, sometimes you get very lucky. Now, again, very much like dexterity games. It is somewhat churlish to say, well, you know, the victory conditions aren't really fair. Like, that's not what we're talking about. It's just a frustrating experience, right? To, to, to be given this task is like, okay, so I have to communicate this tree instead of the four other trees with my set of symbols. Okay, well, let's start with the leaf. And now what do I got? Yes. <laughs> Uh, and then next turn, see someone get assigned to the soccer ball. It's like, oh, okay, I'll play the soccer ball. All right, I guess I'm done here. And honestly, it's just it's, – it's, 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 I don't even know if it's clever. It's just one of those things where very often in party games – and this is fine. This is just how the genre goes. You're just riffing off of previous ideas. Like, okay, this is just combining more stuff together. Like, you know, Mysterium was co-op Dixit. Fine. Pictionary evolves, and now you're drawing with other things. And that, Fine, whatever, that's fine. It's just, I don't like this kind of stuff. I like being, I like trying to interpret what other people did. That part was fine, that part was neat. You know, guessing an association between somewhat abstract representations or somewhat parallel, parallelistic representations, that part's cool, whether it's Deception Hong Kong, Mysterium, you name it. I, I find that enjoyable. The part where I was expected to evoke something and make a creation that would communicate something, I literally found that torturous. And so <laughs> pictures was a, was a fine social experience for me some of the time. And for the other half of the time, it caused me to curse and complain profusely. I found it slightly less torturous. And I love the little spin on it where two people could have the same picture. And, you, you know, and so you, you'd think you could figure out, well, they had that, so it couldn't be that. But no, no, it could be doubled up. So that was hilarious. As well. It's fine. It's well executed. It, it's a very, and I don't mean this as an insult, it's a very solid execution. It's all very well put together. And I mean, I, I would quibble a little bit about some of the picture selection, especially with respect to the card execution. Again, like uh, this tree is opposed to a different tree, kind of hard to do. But a lot of the pictures were fine and had little, little visual bits that a clever person could find to highlight with the limited tools they had available to them. By clever, you mean people other than us. Definitely people other than me. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and that is Pictures. And that was Pictures put out by... P.D. Verlag. And finally, from me, we got to play Project Elite again because I love Project Elite. We decided to test out the Rook team members, and that is the people in giant power armor, power armor, the mechs, and that adds a lot more. I think this is the busiest board we've had. It definitely wasn't the hardest mission we've done, but it's definitely the, the busiest mission we've done. Yes, which is not, I think, Project Elite at its best. 
because the part where you're spawning things on top of other spawns and that dislodges things and then they activate, which causes an endless chain, it's it, it actually feels a little bit like the criticisms that people have about rum and bones. You're dealing with these daisy chains of weird things and following the arrows. So but the fact that we both tried the Rook team members I don't think was the Rook team at its ideal because every Rook team member you add adds another spawn every round. So we went from two, two spawn cards on medium difficulty to four spawn cards. As you can imagine, that I, I did a scientific analysis of this. That's roughly twice as many spawn Ooh, cards. That, like, like, I know. And then the math checks out. I've, I've, I've double-checked it. Like, I've triple-checked it. Spawn and then spawn again. And, and then two and more then, times oh after that. Yeah, goodness, it's double that's the spawning. Very spawny. The Rook team members were interesting, and I would honestly like to try it again where, again, there was, there was one Rook team member amongst uh, the normal group because I think I was playing my team member badly because the normal the normal strategy strategy the normal tactics of Project Elite is you just roll your dice as fast as you can. But every Rook team member replaces one of their dice with a special customized die, and it has a malfunction on it. And if you roll the malfunction, that die, number one, gets locked, which is bad, and number two causes something very bad to happen, which is also bad. And so near the end of the game, I started to realize, wait a minute, maybe I should not be rolling this die very much. (laughs) Maybe I should save it for when I really need something. Or I should save it for when I have the results already lined up that would unlock the die if the malfunction happens. Which means maybe I should be making additional choices during the game. And if that's true, that's awesome. Because Project Elite, you love it much much more than I do. But I think we would both agree, not the most decision-heavy game in the world. Not at all. Which is fine. But injecting a little bit more decision-making might be great. Now, they don't uh, get items, and so that would, again, make them more of an asset in a mixed team, right? You have a couple members that desperately need items and one member that can't use items, so doesn't care. And I think that would lead to some more interesting synergy. I, I, I liked some of the design elements. You know, it's a, it's a Simon Kickstarter project, so the, the balance of the characters seemed to be a little bit all over the place. But that's fine. It's a co-op game. The balance doesn't have to be very tight. I enjoy Project Elite. It's good for some, I think, relatively dumb fun, for some good tension of, of chucking dice. But, uh, I mean, I, partially I had to deal with the frustration of the fact that, A, I chose my character poorly. I chose a character that, in order to move, you needed to have two move results. And in hindsight, that was a mistake. And number two, I swear, uh, I, I don't ever recall rolling as badly in that game of Project Elite as I ever had before. So, I found the Rook team intriguing. I would like to try them again under different circumstances. Yeah, super fun. Project Elite by Simon Games. I got to play more cases of Micro Macro Crime City, and oh my goodness, Walker. Micro Macro Crime City. I tried to sell this at the beginning. No, you did, People and I believe you. listen to me. No, I, no, I believe you. <laughs> no, it's just, no. I, 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 didn't, I didn't feel it, right? Because we played the one case, and my mind was kind of blown. And now I've played three more cases, and it's always that good. I don't like puzzles. I don't like uh, mystery hunts. I don't like the escape rooms. I don't like the unlock games or or things like that. And Micro Macro Crime City is what I want puzzles to be. It's not about here are some sliding things, arrange them in the right way, or here's a number cipher, break this number cipher. It is literally a function of here's a vignette, here's a crime scene. 
tail this guy, backtrack this person to see where they came from and try to figure out why they did what they did. And you're picking up on these little visual cues like, wait a minute, they appear to have been carrying something. This indicates that they were probably headed to or coming from this other thing. Okay, try to see if you can find this thing. And so then you do a little bit of scavenger hunting, but you get these lovely little reveals that reveal narrative and character and texture, which is what I want mysteries to look like. I want them to look like actual narratives rather than just a series of details that have been shoved together to come to a solution. Now, I'm sure there are lots of really good mystery puzzles and escape rooms that do exactly that, and I'm, pr- I'm sure I'm selling the genre short. It's just this is not the kind of thing that I experience very often, whether it's point-and-click adventure games or whether it's any other these types of genres. It was really, really fun. So you have these people. We played with three. You have these three people leaning over a map, sometimes getting distracted by the lovely little graphical touches of things that are unrelated to the case, and then finding the culprit and hating them so much and then saying, wait a minute, they've got a weird expression on their face. What's going on here? And then trying to... Uh, Micro Macro Crime City is a joy and a triumph. This little box, packed full of character. You get 16 cases in the box. We are trying to cut down on duplications in our game collection. I'm going to go out and buy a copy. There's just no two ways about it. I need to have this. I want to see other people solve the cases that I've already solved. I desperately want to go through the other cases myself. Micro Macro Crime City is a delight and a triumph. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Yeah, it's a super easy setup. You put the map out and you start and you flip a card and you read it and you're going. Yes. There's none of these tokens, nothing else to worry about. That's another fantastic part about it. I did the thing and I knew I could do the thing that we tell people never to do, which is I grabbed the box. I didn't know how to play the game. I hadn't read the rules. I just opened it up, read the rule sheet. It's like, yeah, yeah, it works how I think it does. And we were off. Wonderful. Finally, for me, I get to play Pavlov's House. Pavlov's House was put up by David Thompson and Dan Versen Games, an absolutely marvelous solitaire war game featuring a very pivotal moment during the Battle of Stalingrad. And I absolutely adore the solo game. It's probably one of my favorite solo designs from uh, Dan Versen games ever and david thompson is a marvelous designer a lovely interplay of the tactical level decision making about which soldier is going to man which window with which weapon and the strategic element of how are we going to supply the beleaguered occupants of this house and there's now a digital version digital version on steam that you can get that's been put up by dvg i got i got a review code from the designer and I've been playing Pavlov's House on the Steam adaptation. And i got to tell you, it's exactly the kind of adaptation that I want. I'm not sure if it's the kind of adaptation that many people want. It's just you have one fixed view. It's the board. <laughs> and cards come out. You click on what the card wants to do, and you go. There's, none, there's no zooming in and out and weird things. You get the entire perspective that you would get when actually playing the game. Because that's one of the things that I find so alienating digital adaptations, whether they're bespoke digital adaptations or whether they're adaptations on Tabletopia or whether they're adaptations on Tabletop Simulator or even specific ones on Board Game Arena, I often can't get a sense of the overall picture and scrolling around feels alienating. But this is great. I, I'm sure that some people would, would, would hate this sort of minimalistic graphics minimal version where you just, here is the board and you have a hand of cards at the bottom. But it is exactly what I want. And especially for a game like this, because again, it's about having the strategic situation influence your tactical situation and caring about the deployments and when you need to ship ammunition because you know that there's a whole bunch of machine gunners that are coming down this lane. And anyway, 
I am a huge fan of Pablo's House. If you have not tried it and you are at all interested in Solitaire Wargaming, I thoroughly, thoroughly recommend it. And if you would like to give it a chance in its digital version, you can find it on Steam. And so that is Pavlov's House by David Thompson. And those are the games that we played last week. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Portal Games is coming out with Robinson Crusoe, the very big collector's edition. And they're going to be putting on GameFound, the, the new sort of uh, collection agency. <laughs> It's going to be up there on March 23rd, and it's going to have a giant book, tons of missions. I think the first game only had like six six uh, camp, six camp, different missions to do. This one is going to have like some 20-some-odd things you can do. The missions already had a fair degree of variety baked into them, though. True. So this is going to have – they have another company doing miniatures for your characters, all sorts of stuff. So if you want your Robinson Crusoe – Big collector's edition. Apparently, there's going to be an upgrade pack, too, for people that already own it. Oh, good. They haven't really given you any uh, insight to that yet, but that's uh, Portal's MO. We have no idea what the, you know, Nirishima Hex, you know, deluxe thing is going to look like. But anyway, I digress. Robinson Crusoe's collector's edition coming soon to a meat locker near you. Mark, there was a game that you raced triremes around, you know, a lightning-infested ocean. What would you call that? game mark i'm having a little bit of shell shock because having to explain how boats work in civ is still giving me nightmares grease lightning mark (laughs) (laughs) i knew you would love it oh man and that is the only reason i'm talking about it there is going to be a (laughs) trireme boat racing game called grease lightning okay normally we don't like it when there's game art of a character that's meant to clearly be either a celebrity or somebody involved in the dev team but they need to make sure that one of those people looks like john travolta yes agreed or maybe kanicki i'd settle for kanicki <laughs> i don't remember the name of the actor who played kanicki see this is why i don't do good research i don't i don't have the cast of greece available on there <laughs> on, on demand oh in 2021, Level 99 Games is starting another little mini company called Launch 99 because they too don't want to give Kickstarter any money either. So they're going to have their own little lending system. So for their smaller games, they're going to do their own little crowdfunding site called Launch 99. And to a certain extent, it makes sense for Level 99 because they plan to kind of transition to a more subscriber-based model for some of their offerings. You know, if you think about Exceed or some of their other games, it's, it's, it's about a lot of smaller releases. Maybe with luck, this is going to happen to Sakura Arms when they get their localized version. And interestingly enough, Plat Hat Games is doing the same kind of thing for Summoner Wars. They, you have a subscriber-based model for the digital version, and as new factions come out, you get them automatically. Given that the hobby is more and more turning even for non-expandable games, towards a more periodical model, for good or ill, I'm in favor of situations like that. It it definitely can take the edge off of, number one, companies not knowing how much to publish, and number two, uh, if you don't pre-order something, it will be out of stock by the time you realize (laughs) that it's hit retail. On the topic of Kickstarter and how it has shortcomings, and this is one of the reasons why people sometimes ask me, we've said editorially that we don't want to get in bed financially with Kickstarter in terms of a funding model. And one of the reasons why is because we want to be able to be in a position where we can criticize Kickstarter and their policies and not be financially dependent on them or financially tied to them in any way. And the fallout over Tiny Epic Dungeons, I think, has really, really highlighted this because it is increasingly obvious that in... 
the current era that we have, whether you're in board game media or anything else, you basically have one of two options. Either you can have a heavily moderated forum or no forum at all, because the alternative of having a completely unmoderated forum is asking for trouble. And Gameland Games had to spend a lot of time trying to disassociate themselves from a lot of people who are putting out a lot of comments on a lot of Kickstarter threads that are really, quite frankly, gross and stupid and terrible and violent and ugly. And that's basically the bed that Kickstarter has made. Kickstarter has decided that they're not going to moderate their forums and they're not going to give the tools to project creators to moderate their forums either. And this is what you end up with. I mean, it's a shame. And look, we've been critical of moderation policies of people in the past, like Board Game Geek and other things. But it's a hard thing that is impossible to do perfectly. But it is nonetheless something that you have to do. We, like, we've been talking for months about how toxic this environment is for a lot of people. And if you're not willing to moderate your forums, you're contributing to that toxicity. I'm just not sure if the Kickstarter thing is the same sort of beast. This is – I don't know if you could just call it a place where people that have, that have given money are allowed to say what they want because they have – they are – backers of this project right because there are other forums out there and 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 they they they're sort of well uh they welcome people to make comments this is like you know wherever we can come and make comments so you have to be able to moderate it I, i really feel that the kickstarter thing is something different people have decided they're going to give money and they should have the right to say what they want and this is because this is their project they have they've given money i'm not saying that you know they they should be able to say whatever they want but well, but, that, that's literally what, just what you said. It is literally what I said, but but it's it's it's. I think it's a different beast. Is what I'm trying to get at. I, I, I hear where you're coming from, but I strongly disagree. And he, here's what I would say: You can give money to Board Game Geek, and they're still going to moderate you the same way that you would that you would anywhere else. In the context of Kickstarter, just because you happen to be a paying customer, I don't think it follows. And besides, if you get moderated and they des- somebody decides to pull their funding, I think that's a hit that Kickstarter should be willing to make. That is the position that I am articulating at this moment. Furthermore, I could even argue that it's not it, it's not even just that you're giving you're a paying customer. You're a paying customer to a specific project leader. Right, which one could argue at its best, and this is very much the vision that Kickstarter is interested in, in in presenting itself, is a vote of confidence and a desire to collaborate with that individual, whether it's Gamlin Gaines or Simon or whatever. And therefore, I think it makes perfect sense for that person, that project leader, at least to be able to exercise some degree of control. Now, then we could enter into a discussion about what control they're issuing and. Naturally, there might be some accusations that they're using the control to silence people who are critical of their commercial practices. I'm not saying it would be easy. What I'm saying is is that the moment you create a platform online for people to speak, somebody, somewhere, has to exercise some degree of accountability. And if you leave all of that, accom- uh, that, uh, that accountability and all of that control down to the lowest end user, you're asking for trouble. And the trouble keeps happening in the same predictable ways. And I'm saying that platforms like Kickstarter need to start looking at themselves more seriously and about the environment that they foster. And currently, the most recent incident, Gamblin Games was the one left holding the bag. And I would even argue from a pure commercial perspective, it impedes their ability to control their brand. It impedes their ability to present themselves on the market in the way they want to when their commercial enterprise is invariably sullied by a whole bunch of 
jerkwads, which is a technical philosophical term, who want to talk about how they feel alienated from the hobby because they can't look at boobs 24 hours a day. It's true. When people back that project and they, they're excited about it, and they go, okay, well, I'm going to go and talk about it, and they have to go read through all this other, and it's going to turn them off the hobby. Yeah. Anyway, so clearly we disagree about, about moderation policies. I don't hold that the opposite position, but the opposite position needs to be spoken. Does it, though? It does. Okay. Just like on the forums. <laughs> no. <laughs> that okay. is Michael Walker applauding himself <laughs> because no one else will. And that is the news. And what I say doesn't matter. Now on to the feature game of the week. Anachrony. Mark, how does this fall into the timeline? So Anachrony was put up by Mind Clash Games in 2017. It was their second published design after Tricarion. And Anachrony was designed by Richard Amon and Victor Peter with some development work by David Turkze, who did the solo version as well as some other assistants. And Richard Amon and Victor Peter are very much the core design elements of a lot of the Mind Clash designs. And when it launched after a successful Kickstarter, it had a whole bunch of expansions. For example, you could get it without Giant Stompy Mechs, which is a mistake. It had the Doomsday Enhancement Pack. It had the Leader Box. It had a, a whole bunch of different ways to do it and a whole bunch of different modules that could be grafted on. But Fractures of Time, which was released last year and which we received as a review copy from Mind Clash Games, was the first sort of big box gameplay expansion to Anachrony, and it too was designed by Richard Amon, Victor Peter, and David Turtze. Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in Anachrony? I really don't know what you do in this game, Mark, because it really doesn't, really doesn't, it really doesn't tell you. It's like something, something, big rock, something, something, big boom. You travel, got to travel back in time, but you can't work together to save the world because, you know, games like this, you know, you have to have separate guilds and you can't post-apocalyptic, blah, blah, blah. Can't work together, but you need to know your evacuation conditions. The whole thing centers around the fact that you know this big catastrophe is going to happen and you have to make sure you have four loaves of bread and a weed whacker and then you can get all your people to safety. Well, now I feel very guilty uh, because I actually quite like the theme of Anachrony and I think that the lore is actually reasonably good. Now... I would have said, and I would have anticipated, that this was relatively good whether you dove into the art book with all the lore or not. Uh, but apparently I'm wrong, and I just should have done a better job of selling the setting to you. And so I would like to issue a personal <laughs> apology for not having done so. Walker, I am sorry. Well, so there are four, five factions now in the expansion. And effectively, the reason why they can't work together is they just have fundamentally different views about how society needs to be operated. And they all have, whether it's an underground bunker or one of them works out of a converted aircraft carrier or a secret cave with biomechanical stuff, they're interested in just, you know, winning hearts and minds. And so the evacuation condition actually represents them going to the capital and saying, people of the capital, you are doomed, but come with us. We have our stuff together. We have a weed whacker. And a loaf of bread. And a loaf of bread. I'm just wondering, yeah, well, why can't they just work together? And I guess they're not stopping. There's no way to stop this from happening, I guess. I guess they're not going. Funny you mention that. I guess they're not going back. Is that the base game? I don't know. Are they going back in time thinking they can stop it from happening? Or? No. Well, so so this, this is getting ahead of ourselves. One of the modules that you haven't tried but I have is called the Doomsday Module. And so there's Pioneers of Lost Earth. There's the Doomsday Module. In one of the modules, it is possible 
that two of the factions who want to avert the catastrophe might be able to avert the catastrophe. Two of the other factions like the fact that the catastrophe happens. One of them because they are religious fanatics, and another group because they don't care what happens on the surface because they live in cloud cities, and so they figure that the surface can, can, uh, can be hit by a meteor and they don't care. Uh, it is a wonky module, and I'll talk more about modules later. I think you have some things to say about the add-on modules yourself based on your experience of them. Well, that being said... So, so Dick and Jane, you want to play Anachrony. Well, here we go. First, decide which modules you're going to place. Yes. Then you have to decide which faction you're going to play. And then decide which leader you're going to play. And then which side you're going to be playing on. Either A, B, or B side. And I'd keep going on like this, but don't worry. There's a 16-phase setup that will guide you through <laughs> everything you need to know about Anachrony. Yes, every Mind Clash game has been of this fundamental pattern. Anything that can have an a, a, a uniform A-side and an asymmetric B-side, you're going to have to decide what to do with that. And you get to decide which special Benny you start with. And Anachrony just compounds this because by the time you get to Fractures of Time, you get to decide between leaders the A and B-side for Evacuation, A and B-side for your Maidborn, and A and B-side for your Fracture Device. And so there's a fair amount of A's and B's going on. Yeah, so th- like throughout the rest of this talk about Anachrony, it's going to sound like I don't like this game or that I'm down on it. One can rest, get that impression. Rest assured that I think this is a fantastic game. But this goes back to what I'm talking about before. I really feel, though, it's a game that you can't just pull out whenever you want to and play it. You're definitely going to need the rule book, going over quite a few fiddly bits. But I really feel that if you are looking for a game for your group that is your game, this is your Gaia project, your Terra Mystica, your Agricola, I think you could do no wrong with Anachrony. It's got huge, I'll go on about replayability later, but overall, I think it's a great game. Let us continue. Setup is a bit of a bear. It's going to be rather extensive, and there are going to be little details that are difficult to remember that you're going to have to look up. Every round, you're going to get new buildings, and you might get new card effects if you're playing with various modules, and you're going to have to look those up, and there's unfortunately not an omnibus reference. They, they, they put out a lot of additional bells and whistles oh. for Anachrony. Oh, yeah, boy, you want... You want tokens? Let's, let's go tokens. <laughs> we got power core tokens, glitch tokens, flux core, warp, paradox, four different minerals, water, four different workers, variable, variable anomalies, breakthrough tiles, five different, completely different dice that you need, path tiles, morale, time travel, victory point, and 80 different buildings. You forgot about the super projects. Super projects. Oh, yeah, the super project tiles. <laughs> you forgot about super projects. Yeah. But but here's the thing. Here's what I want to... I, I agree with you entirely about the sprawl, about having to, to look all these things up. But here's one thing that I want to point out. And I, I, was, I was considering this, and it's actually quite salient for me. One of the things that I really like about Anachrony, I've talked about this before, is managing your workforce. It sounds dull, but I think it's really cool because you have four, five with the expansion, different kinds of workers, and they do different things. Here, here's the striking thing about Anachrony. Players who played for the first time, players who've played several times but haven't played for a very long time, nobody ever forgets what they're called. Now, this may sound trivial, and to a certain extent it may be, but I think it's, I think it's salient. Contrast this with Argent. I really like Argent. I could not tell you what the mages are called. There are blue mages. I think they're the School of Divinity. I'm not 100% sure. I'd have, I'd have to go check. But in Acrity, I remember what they're all called, and I never have any difficulty remembering what they do. Because the iconography on the board, and for what the various workers, 
is great. It is great, but there I, is a lot of it. There, there is a lot of it. But what I'm saying is, is that well, this is one of the things that that I that I really like about Mind Clash designs, as compared to a say a Vital Lacerda design, or even sometimes something like an Alexander Pfister design. Even when there's sprawl, there's usually some notion of focus and vision that I can see there. And although Anachrony is not my favorite of their designs, and it's not even my favorite heavy worker placement kind of thing, but it doesn't ever lose sight of the, the forest for the trees. And one of the indications of that is in the way that, that there are some details that you can still grok and remember, like the, what all the workers are called. Again, maybe it's a trivial detail, but I think that it's telling. No, so like you said, there are four or five different workers, and it is a worker placement, and it's very tight, even with the expansion that we've been playing with recently that lets you move them around. I couldn't even think going back to the old way that would be even more, you know, blocking. Mm. So different workers get different abilities depending on where they go. Some workers can't go to certain areas, and some workers get bonuses when they go to some areas. But I think that all works out great, in my opinion. I wish the worker placement were a little tighter. I mean, there is blocking, but it's not blocking to the same level of quality that you would see even in the two worker placement, the other two worker placement games I played this week. In Argent, if somebody's standing where you want, uh, where they are, you can try to leverage a spell to kick them out or send a certain kind of mage to kick them out or what have you. In Barrage, the blocking is so much tighter and you're blocking people on a central map. Here, if I go and I build a power plant, Uh, chances are excellent that whatever power plant you want to build will probably suit your purposes just about as well. And I didn't go there to deprive you of the power plant. I just went there because I wanted the power plant. In other words, it's the standard sort of accidental blocking and worker placement that you're going to see in a lot of other Euros of of this weight and lighter. Well, let's be make sure we talk about the best part about the worker placement is that you get to put your token in a giant robot. Oh, yeah. And then place your giant robot where it's supposed to go. So... So all of this, all of the outside world, I guess, is is nuclefied or, you know... You, you it's, got, a, it's an irradiated it, wasteland. It's an irradiated yeah. wasteland, so you got to, you know, get in these, you know, uh, safety suits to go out. But then you also have all these places that you can go within your own facility where you don't need uh, robots. And at the beginning of the turn, you have to decide how many of these robots that you're going to need. I think that's a very interesting part of the game, too. You sort of have to pre-plan or, you know, show that, you know, which resources you're going to have to spend this turn, power up your suits, and then send them out. And I really like the follow-on effect that it has in terms of the buildings that you build, because again, managing your workforce is one of the key challenges. You're not going to be, ha- you're probably even by turn one, not going to have enough suits to be able to send all of your workers out to the central board. So then the question is, can I have enough useful things for my workers to do at home where they don't need suits? And to do that, I'm going to need to build the right buildings or have the right effects to make sure that they can be successful. And again, although that's cool in terms of managing your workforce, it actually leads back into the absence of blocking because a truly successful economy is one that cannot be blocked because I have things for my workers to do where no one no one else can send workers. It does have that sort of feed your feed your family type thing you need water all the time and if you don't get water generation you're a lot of trouble because we call it aquacola aquacola and uh that's that was painful no it wasn't um do you resent its absence there is a spot on the board that will get you three or four water but usually to get all your workers back you'll need more than four water so therefore it's going to take 
two workers in order to get all of your workers back. Or usually the right buildings. Or the right buildings. You know what I mean? So it's one of these things, and when you want to trade, so the the value of water is like pretty well three for anything. You know, you three to get the minerals you want or three to get a power core. So water is very important in this game, and sometimes it's a pain to get it. Or you could just decide not to focus on that. So in Akerny, it's not quite point salad, but you're definitely going to be scoring for a lot of different things. And sometimes I care very much about feeding my workers. And sometimes I just send them back to work with a slap upside the head and said, get to it. Because you don't have to give them water to send them back to work. You can just lose points. But if you're getting points elsewhere on the from the other sources and you have a better use for the water, or if your water supply isn't terribly good, you, yeah, you can just eat it. So like you said, there's lots of places to get points, and that's what I like about it, because there's some things that you can just ignore in the game. Like you said, the super projects, or or you don't want to do this, you don't want to do that. If it's your first game, or you, you can slowly introduce yourself to some things. But there's some things that you can't ignore so much, because there are points there. Like if you want to be anywhere competitive, right. there are some things you can't uh, ignore, because you're sort of forced to be involved in it, because because of the points that you get out of it. Uh, like the time track, uh, this is the whole sort of premise of the game where you're going to go back in time and, and borrow resources from the past, but you've got to... From the future. For, sorry, you borrow resources from the future, but you have to go back eventually and, and pay them back. And that's all well and good because uh, it's an interesting theme, but then they penalize you for it. You have to roll some dice and you're going to get some penalties and then... And then in the expansion, they do the exact same thing. They don't. It, it, you have to build this time machine. It has this very interesting blinking thing where you can move your workers to other places. But then they put in the exact same mechanism where you have to. Be, you're you're penalized. Roll the dice again. Take more penalties. It's going to cost even more for you to repair stuff. So it's just adding on more stuff. Hmm. I think that. So now let's talk about the specifically the expansion stuff in Fractures of Time, absent the additional modules. Because there's a sub-expansion, which is Future Imperfect, which has some of the... So just Fractures of Time, which includes Future Imperfect, but it's just the Fractures of Time stuff. I actually think that they improved it, because effectively the time travel in the base game feels very perfunctory, and it feels very unsatisfying. Often what I'll find myself doing, quite frankly, is I will take out a loan, not use the thing that I get from the loan just so I can send it back through time next turn because it's worth a lot of points. Yes, it's, exactly. It's at, it's at least two points every time you do it, sometimes even more based on, on other circumstances. And it, the opportunity cost is not huge. Now, one of the opportunity costs is you get to roll the dice, which will give you some number of paradoxes. And you're right. Some people are going to reliably get no paradoxes and some people are going to reliably get one or two. That's unfortunate. With the fracture device which doesn't allow you to move resources around. It lets you use a worker twice in the same round, which is great. Again, anything related to managing the workforce, I'm all over. I think it's really, really cool. And the fracture device, the more you use it, the more likely you are going to get glitches, which are worth negative points, and glitches get stitches. And ultimately, there are ways to maintain your device, which is, you know, it costs you tempo, and it's not a fun thing to do because you're not getting a whole bunch of stuff, but it reduces the risk of that. And the fact that it's basically a push-your-luck mechanism. If you don't upgrade your machine, if you don't clear the the cores from the, the center of the machine, you're more likely to get glitches as you keep using it, especially if you're not using the new worker-type operators because operators don't care. They're, they're immune to glitches. So there's ways to mitigate it in a way that I didn't feel was true of the paradox dice rolling of the base game. Agreed. This is a game that definitely rewards people who've played it multiple times. Because I have this in under the under the expansions 
Do you know the game well? Well, introduce the expansion to your friends so you can really grind them into the dirt, right? Because because it adds on a lot of extra weight to the game. It's not as though it's just more cards or more. All of these things are or more and more mechanisms that are things that will help you if you incorporate all of them into the game. So if you're having people, I guess not all people play games like I do, where you just you know play certain parts of the game. Maybe there are people that encompass the whole thing immediately, but for people that are new that only encompass, you know, small parts of the game, whereas you're doing everything, you're really going to do much better than they are. It definitely rewards experience, but I think this would be true of the base game as well as the expansion. I mean, warping is so cool and dealing with it is so much fun. I think it's still worth it. Will it increase the margins by which an experienced player will beat a new player? Quite possibly. I think that's that, that's quite likely true. Is the rules load manageable? I think it is. And it's 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 neat to warp around and mess around with your, your, your warp device slash time machine. So I think well, it's not, it's it's not so much the time machine one, it was the the pro the super scientific project part that was on top of it as well. Yes. So then there's the the downside of a lot of the design aesthetic with the add-on stuff. I will say that in the universe of Anachrony add-on modules, Fractures of Time, just the core stuff, is by far the best. But it still has this extra deck of cards, which are technology cards, which kind of sort of feel like the one detail too many, the one extra ingredient that it didn't need that I would have liked to have been hived off. Because, and this is a way I'd like to segue to the other modules, whether it's Doomsday, whether it's Future Imperfect, uh, Pioneers of New Earth, Intrigues of the Council. We tried Intrigues of the Council most recently. And it felt very much like all of the other modules that I've tried, which is to say, here is one gameplay element, which is kind of cool and neat, that is shackled to this other thing that is super ancillary and no one is going to mess with. And that is exactly what happened. In theory, Intrigues of, Newer, uh, Intrigues of the Council is a replacement for the end game gold cards. You know, at the end of the game, whoever has the most gold gets three points, or whoever has the most water gets three points, or whatever. Well, whatever. And here, the idea is, well, you will decide over the course of the game what the end game bonuses will be. Whoever has the most water loses two points. Whoever has built the most buildings gets seven. And that possibility is cool, just like the possibility of the Doomsday module and the Pioneers of New Earth is all cool. And it's just the one detail too many that even the experienced players of Anachrony around the table just end up mostly forgetting, in my experience. And not accidentally forgetting, purposely forgetting. Exactly. Uh, if for no other reason than, you know, it's already a game that's sprawling to a large degree, the board's going to be off to the side. <laughs> it's, you're focusing on the more fun element that's introduced. So, for example, in Intrigues of the Council, there were these mission cards. And the mission cards, in theory, were ways to implicate the other board. But we just, we thought, oh, these mission cards are kind of cool, and ignored the other board. Yeah. And that, that, well, because you have to dedicate workers to them. So that's even more things, more resources you're, you know, you're losing just to do this thing that really doesn't matter yeah i i always want the modules to come together in a way they they are because again i i I like the thematic hooks i like the conceptual conceits that are behind them the overall structural goals of the modules i really appreciate and i don't think they work which is one of the reasons why i'm so pleased with fractures of time because of how comparatively tight and focused it is and of how neat the additional element is and how warping just fits with the rest of the game so much better yes the technology deck is is again one detail too many but the rest of it i think is great all right let's move on to the other thing that lots of people like and is done very well in this game is the fact that there's like sort of two phases to the game there's the 
pre-disaster and then there's the post-disaster. And after the big disaster happens, it sort of locks down some of the spaces and you're going to get less mechs or it's going to become more expensive for you to put your mechs out. And I really like how that flip-flops the game and, and sort of changes up how you play. I've spoken before that if a game is going to be past two hours, I want it to have an arc. And Anachrony is reliably going to be two, two to two and a half hours. Uh, if you're talking about new players and or if you start involving more modules, it can easily go to three. And that's not my preferred way to play it, but I'm willing to forgive it because, again, it's got an arc. It's got a bit of a narrative scope. You're scrambling to get things together, trying to build things, and then this massive meteor hits and suddenly all bets are off and you need to evacuate people and, and the, the, the tension goes up because suddenly the worker spaces start to evaporate. I really like it. It gives it gives the, a game a shot in the arm and means that you're not doing the same thing over and over and over again. And talking about not doing the same thing over and over again, how every game is different. And I sort of talked about how it was a bad thing in the setup, but it's not so much because there's so many different factions and they all are definitely different and are played different. And each one has a, a variety of leaders that you can pick and has two different sides, which are going to change your evacuation uh, uh, resources that you need. Uh, there's all of the buildings. Like I said, there's uh, 80 different buildings. They're going to come up in different orders, and you can change your your strategies thusly. <laughs> it it makes me okay with the constant rulebook referencing to find out how these all do because you do get payoff in that way. So I'm willing to forgive it. And then we talked about how the game uh, changes, and you're putting out these collapsing tiles, and they're going to be different every game. Uh, the super projects that come along the bottom, they're going to be different every time. End game condition cards, which you said, which are better than the other modules, they're, they change up. Uh, during the game, there's two different decks that get flipped up every round to tell you how, which uh, resources are going to be generated and what workers are going to be generated. And we had an odd sort of thing that happened last game, which is was very cool. There was two factions that didn't start with any administrators, and administrators would not come up in that deck, so we had to fight for other ways to get them, which I, which was I thought was very interesting. And like I said, it lets you focus on different goals. I still wish. This is probably my, still my biggest misgiving with respect to Anachrony. Other than the difficulty of having to look everything up and the sprawling nature of the components and the difficulty of setup... I, I still wish the time travel felt better. <laughs> it's 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 the essential narrative conceits of the game, and yes, you get f- vague ev- evocations of the time travel because we know when the disaster is happening. You get the vague ev- evocations of time travel in the fracture device, which is still really cool. But the problem is that it just works like a loan, a loan that you take out just because you know you're going to pay it back. And honestly, if this were the if this were the kind of game that had serious compounding interest. If it had infrastructure, you don't really get a whole lot of infrastructure now, which is fine. That's not a criticism of the game, but it's not like you're, you're building up a production engine. If you were building up a production engine, that might make the loans more consequential. Getting that additional influx of resources in turn one will really help you down the line in turn three, instead of just being like, oh, well, you know, I'll get this cube this way instead of sending somebody to the mine. And I guess I'll send somebody to the mine later to pay back the thing that I could have gotten just from sending somebody to the mine. So with a slightly different economy, I think the time travel could have felt more consequential on its own terms, rather than being, oh, I'll take out this loan so I can go up a track. Yeah, if they sort of said, well, the before times, everything was prosperous and great, whereas in after times is really bad. So you you can start saying stuff ahead in time. So you're like, you're preparing yeah. for the future. So like when the big accident does happen, then, you know, if you've planned well enough at the beginning, now you're going to have this influx of, of resources coming from the past. That would have been interesting as well. No, you're right. Uh, um 
Eclipse did that. In first edition Eclipse, the, uh, the, the Eldorado faction, they could send things into the future. And here, in Anachrony, it would make yet more sense because you're right. There's this artificial scarcity that gets introduced organically by virtue of the thematic events. And it would have worked thematically. It would have fit with the time travel and everything. You're right. I think that would have been good. Maybe they'll introduce a module where you can do that. And on top of that, there's an entire other uh, other chit mechanism that doesn't make any sense. Uh, more than likely, because they have to introduce seven more types of tokens. 100%. So to sum up, I mean, we, we rag on anachrony. It's, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of evident faults. In a number of ways, it's your average, overproduced, bog-standard Euro worker placement game. But in a whole bunch of other ways, it is worthy of your time and attention. And I will say that in terms of a value proposition, I still think that Mind Clash gives you a lot of solid components for a relatively uh, low entry point when compared to a lot of other publishers. It's not cheap by any stretch of the imagination, but when you get the Stompy mechs, you know where your money went. Yeah, this, is, this is the type of game that will pay you back for the time that you put into it. It's a direct one-to-one. The more, the more attention you give it, the more it will pay back to you for sure. I agree. So as I've said before, for me, the bar starts getting higher and higher as the components start to sprawl and as the playtime starts to dip in excess of two hours. In a universe with millions of other worker placement games and a lot of really solid Uwe Rosenberg worker placement games that are well under 90 minutes or sometimes even under right around 60 minutes in the case of Hollertau, I absolutely love those games. But every once in a while, I would like a sprawling, more thematic experience with the trappings of a sci-fi epic and with lovely little components. But nonetheless, is just focused enough so I feel like I'm not missing the script. And for that, I will absolutely turn to Anachrony every now and then with pleasure. And I do think that my preferred version now is with Fractures of Time, despite the problems of the technology deck, no other modules involved. Do I like the fact that the other modules exist? Conceptually, maybe. But mostly, it's just stuff taking up space now, because I don't think I can recommend those. But Fractures of Time, I think, is an absolutely solid expansion and serves to address some of the thematic uh, misgivings I have with the base game. And it's just really neat to tinker with a time machine. I mean, it's hard to quibble with that. It's true. Well, thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again very much for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoeseteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. 
I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.